So hello, welcome to Everyday Anarchism. Lisa and James, we're here to talk about uh, the Roman Empire or the Roman Republic. It can be sometimes hard to tell when when one ends and the next one begins. You two can tell me that if you want to. Um, so Lisa, could you tell us a little about yourself and the work you're doing and maybe the work you're doing with James and we'll, we'll get James involved uh, after that. Sure, great. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, so yeah, so I'm Lisa Eberle. I am a Roman historian working at the University of Tübingen. Um, and yes, really sort of the main focus of my work is the Roman Empire, particularly interested in the role that law, that resistance and migration, um, particularly sort of in the form of settler colonialism, played in shaping how the empire was governed, ultimately. Um, yes, and so with that, I'll just pass it over to James. Uh, thank you, uh, and uh, thank you very much for um, having me on. My name is James Court-Webster. Um, I'm an ancient historian at King's College London in the UK, um, and I work on the, the kind of historiography and experience of minority groups living under the Roman Empire. Um, I'm currently working and have been working for a while on the early Christian experience. Um, which is a, a kind of one more minority group in the Roman Empire, which uh, whose history has kind of been written up as a as a special case. Um, so a lot of my work is kind of trying to embed the Christians back in in the Roman world, and that um, in part because the experience of the Christians is um, allegedly at least quite tempestuous, has led me to to kind of be interested in questions of how the Roman Empire was governed, um, and like Lisa, so we come at this from very different places, I think, but we both kind of found ourselves a bit dissatisfied with the traditional narrative of how, in particular, Roman governors, the story of kind of how Roman governors did their job and why they did their job, the traditional story that's told around that. So we have been working together for a while now on trying to kind of set up some corrections or, or come at this from a different approach to to, to understand the experience of the actual people who did the work of governing rather than approaching it in a, in a more theoretical way. So James, just sort of briefly speaking of people, you know, like in sort of in the run up to, to this interview, I was thinking, do you remember how we actually met? How did Lisa, Lisa and I, I, yeah, I do. So I, I Lisa was um, uh, a high flyer at Berkeley when we were both graduate students and I was in Manchester, but I came to the US for a year and I needed somewhere to live. And so I sent a prospective email around the Berkeley mailing list and um, and Lisa was going to Germany for the year. So Lisa and I met by not meeting because I, I lived in her room for a year. Um, and then I think, right, uh, sort of how this project got going was like, I think I read or, or you sent me sort of a preprint of an article you published in 2017. We, um, we had adjacent articles of the same in the same journal issue. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I read it and was like, huh. I, you know, I mean, basically it's a, I'm sure like basically James can tell you um, a lot more about this, about the details of the article, but it, but essentially one of the points that he tries to make is that, oh God, being a governor, it was a, basically it was a shitty, it was a hard job that came with high risks and pitfalls and potential. Um, and I was saying, oh, um, in very different material that I was working on it at the time. I thought, oh, I see exactly the same thing. Um, and then we sort of re-established contact and sort of very slowly but steadily now got this project going. Um, got yeah, some people involved and there we are. What's been interesting, we were probably getting ahead of ourselves intellectually, but actually we realized that we were coming at the same, at the same issue, which was the sort of lack of understanding of how of, of the, the sort of what was motivating governors on the ground in trying to do the work of governance. So I was kind of thinking about the, the difficulties on the ground in the provinces and Lisa was thinking about the sort of the stakes for them back in Rome and the environment back in Rome. And actually when you put those two, two things together, you actually start to build up a much more holistic picture of the kind of the the world, well, what we're calling the kind of the world or the world worldview of the the individual men who were sent to kind of do the work of governing. Okay, so there's some great stuff to jump off there. Uh, the idea of di dissatisfaction with the 
traditional narrative. I mean, that's that's precisely why I invited you on the show because the, I, I don't. I'm also dissatisfied with the traditional narrative, although I don't have the grasp of of what Roman governance was like. So let's get started with. Um, so first of all, what was Roman provincial governance like? I gather it was not um, as as top down and as bureaucratic as we tend to imagine the Romans were, if that's if that's not already getting ahead of ourselves intellectually. Sure, so I was, uh, right, so, so we had a brief email um, conversation be um, before we met here, and I was really struck by your use of the word bureaucratic, because it's interesting, and I sort of, I tried to go back in scholarship and bring like, is there actually, right, is there anything, where can we find this, where does this come from, and to be honest, from everything that I've been able to find, I, I cannot really find properly a Roman historian who will call the Roman Empire bureaucratic. However, what there certainly is, and that's a really long-standing, very, very important tradition in our scholarship, is the idea that basically we can understand the empire and how it was run by focusing on law. Particularly sort of on focusing on law that governed the actions of the people doing the governing um, and on law as in, you know, the rights that the empire accorded, the rights and privileges to different groups, people um, and uh, and uh, individuals. And that's sort of a narrative that's almost like it's really foundational to sort of the field of Roman studies sort of in an academic context as it was instituted in the 19th century. I, I, I would add I would add to that 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 the other thing to bear in mind here is that this is kind of bound up with an idea of the kind of the great leg the great legacies of classical civilization, which I think goes back a little bit going to what you were saying before, which is you know the Athenians, the, the Greeks have given us political thought, and the great the great gift of Rome is the legal is the legal system, mm -hmm. right? And that that this underlies so much of kind of later legal thought. So that so there there's always the assumption that the kind of you know the the thing the Romans were good at was law, and that this must then kind of be the starting point for understanding kind of everything about Rome. And and there's, I mean, there's all sorts of things to say on that, but that you know those when the when the lawyers are looking at Rome, they're looking at late antique Roman legal codices, primarily Justinian's in the sixth century, but but kind of going back to the the um, early fourth, uh, late third century. But that codification project is a quite late. Um, it only really starts in the kind of with Hadrian in the second century. So that sort of that 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 kind of codification perspective is not does not define the early or the high empire really. And secondly, that there's a big distinction between civil law and what we would now think of as criminal law. And the 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 kind of the bit of Roman law that is great is the is or great is that the kind of civil or civic side and the criminal law is um in the provinces in particular is uh, much more like the wild west so so i mean what lisa is absolutely right but i think that that approach is bound up with kind of what people expected and almost needed to find in roman society because it's it was a kind of principle on which so much later um civic structure had been built yeah, I mean, I just want to say that's that's where I'm coming to this from from the from the understanding that the current bureaucratic administrative uh, state that we have is in some ways modeled on or you know inheriting a a Roman bureaucratic administrative state, even though that that idea doesn't seem on very firm grounds in an understanding of actual the actual Roman administrative procedures. Yeah, so right, so maybe before we get to our project, like it just seems fair to say that there are sort of several strands of scholarship that have over the past, well, you know, roughly 50 years sort of attacked and um, called, in, called into question this sort of idea that, that we can essentially understand um, the Roman Empire by uh, through law. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of them is actually um, strikes me as very um, pertinent to your uh, interest in the bureaucracy because actually now um, sort of among pre uh, sort of among pre-modern empires uh, sort of in, in a comparative perspective, the Roman Empire, particularly in its early stages, 
right? So this is, we're talking about the empire as it was built up during the Republic, and then the empire in the Principate, that's sort of from zero, um, sort of from the, um, from the turn of the millennium to around 300, as sort of particularly light in, in administration. So just the number of administrators that existed um, compared to like the people over whom, like whom they were to administer, slash over whom they ruled, um, it's basically that there is, uh, there are very few other pre-modern empires that seem to have had such a light level of administration, quote unquote, just from a sort of personnel, um, um, from a personnel perspective. Yeah, so if you think about about kind of in 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 modern government, there is this that layer of the civil service that is it that is enacting kind of government directive, and with the Roman world, you basically you have to imagine a kind of an empire of sixty million people being governed essentially without that layer of the civil service. I mean, there are the, you know there's the imperial household. Um, but but which but that's you know vanishingly small in, in you know in relative terms. When a governor is sent to the province, he basically just goes with a skeleton staff, really. You know, kind of handful of chosen advisors and and a few other kind of more minor posts. But really, it's kind of just him um, getting on with it in each province. And you know, in a particular issue comes up, he just writes you know, to the emperor, you know, to the, the, the there's, there's no layers of middle management there, really. He just writes with, like, there's an open sewer in the street of this town. Do you think, do you think we should close up the open sewer? You know, that, that, and it's that kind of granular, granular level. So that already that tells you about the kind of scope of your agency, right? You know, one of the arguments has been that if that's how you're managing it, you cannot be enacting big picture policy. Because you, you because that big picture policy requires even as a conception requires the kind of personnel to do it. If you're working on that kind of here's a problem, here's a, and that also has been, Fergus Miller has essentially called it reactive government, right? That if you're, if that's if that's your resources, then you you can but only respond to individual things that come come in. It's like inbox management, right? You you can't get beyond trying to deal with the kind of the most recent thing that. That comes in, and I think there's also a you know there's, there's just the, there's the practical side, right? That's that's the, the the people involved. Also, just the relative size of the army compared with the size of the empire. You know, Rome has a military, has a standing professionalized military, um, and it's big, right? It's four hundred thousand people. That's a big army in the pre-modern state. But if your empire is the whole of the Mediterranean, and there's I don't know like fifty million people in it, you know, you cannot rule by force. It's just simply inadequate to do it, right? It just aren't enough soldiers. Um, so, so you know, there's the practical side to kind of civic and military, and then I think there's also just an ideological side of this, and this is a bit more controversial, I suppose. But, but you know, what do you have an empire for, and and what do you actually want to get out of it? Like the idea that you have a big, a kind of big state is in, in implies that you want to do a lot of stuff. Out there in the provinces. Well, why do you want to do that? What's your payoff? If and this is kind of a bit oversimplified, but if really you're interested in having an empire to bring in resources to the centre to make money, then you kind of want to do as little as possible, right? Because what? Why would you want to spend your doing stuff? Spends resources. So if your goal is to gain resources, you basically want to do as little as possible, and that means kind of keeping things quiet. Because unrest is A, then you have to respond to it, which is messy, and B, it prevents the taxes coming in. So if that's your ideological model of what empire is trying to do, which you know is not is not kind of universally accepted, but in the in the Roman in the Roman case, I mean, then actually, you know, wh why would you want a big a big bureaucracy, right? You, you kind of don't want to do very much there. You want to do the bare minimum and let the profits let the profits flow in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I realize now I probably should have started with a with a quote because um, of you know the other way of thinking about the Roman Empire. I mean, I must say I cannot imagine a administering a group of of sixty million people without a bunch of civil servants. And I think this is one of the things that I've been trying to get at with this series is our imagination sort of ends with the, the the 19th century. We 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 don't seem to be able to conceive of, or at least 
I'm not able to conceive of uh, a project of even calling it a governance project. I mean, not to, I mean, this show is called Everyday Anarchism, but I mean, this sounds like anarchy, right? Just sending someone and saying, oh, well, you know, figure it out. And then, I mean, we we probably have uh, uh, 60 million. I mean, there's probably more people in the English department at, at UNC serving as administrators than it sounds like there were in the average Roman province. And I think that's just something that we have a hard time wrapping our head around. I can't wrap my head around it. it you're speaking to you. Okay, so um, to make, uh, in an attempt to make this a bit more imaginable, um, again, sort of from the comparative pre-modern perspective, right, you would say, look, all these empires, the way in which they work is you can't, there's no central state that is able to sort of control the entire territory. So how do these things remain stable, right? How doesn't this all always constantly fall apart is you need to get the cooperation, the cooperation of the local elites. Uh, okay. Right. That sort of, you need to get their buy-in and, you know, then, I, and so maybe there's two points here, right? One, then the interesting question becomes is how do you get their buy-in, right? How does, how does that work? How Right. If you want to call it consensual, right? Just a, how does this cooperation? How does how is this sort of being kept in place? Um, but the um, the other thing um, then also is you know just in terms of sort of administration as well. Of course, what do these local elites do well in the Roman Empire? I mean, they run towns. So right. So their their role is kind of two facing. One is towards the imperial elite and the emperor and sort of, you know, those two groups have to work out the deal, essentially. Um, but then, of course, they, you know, act as um, administrators, either sort of at a more granular sort of local level. Um, maybe we're still not in the scale of, you know, the administrative intensity of the English department. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think says more about modern universities than about the Roman Empire, right? Oh, sure. But that's the thing is that we can't imagine, you know, we can't imagine not running things this way. I don't, I don't think we can. Um, I mean, I, what, go ahead. One, other, one other way of putting what, what, what Lisa was saying is that, you know, some of this, some of this work is being done. It's just that it's the Romans don't do it themselves, right? That's, that's, that's the best way to have an empire and run it is if you, if you get all the stuff and someone else does the work for you. And that, that's the genius of the, the Roman imperial system, is that they, what we might call soft power, right? they are extremely effective and they have, they have a series of, um, in some cases, kind of really innovative and almost unique for pre-modern empires, ways of getting the buy-in of local elites. That's what's, that's what's amazing about the way the Roman Empire is run. Okay, God, I have so many questions. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try this one then. So it's, it sounds like what Lisa was just describing is a model that I would be more likely to call like confederation than a kind of centralization. Like if you can think of it as towns, I mean, if you, maybe a police is even the correct example, which has local elites that are then confederated into provinces and then the provinces are confederated into an an empire and then what you absolutely do not have if that's the case is a a monolithic central state which again is more or less the rome of my imagination i mean lisa is is more qualified to speak on the on the earlier period i mean the only thing i would say to that i mean i think that's bang on is that is that there's an evolution basically from the late republic through to late antiquity that when you know Rome gains the empire piecemeal and arguably semi-accidentally in certain areas, that that's a whole separate question as to you know how how deliberative the Roman gaining of empire is. But they what is clear is that they in the different territories they gain, they they are very happy to negotiate bespoke arrangements with each place based upon what what pre-exists and how antagonistic the area is and what will work best for Rome. So you what you what used to be called the sort of client kingdoms of the late republic are actually kind of each one of the kind of bespoke arrangements. And then what happens is gradually over time more and more of those are brought towards being what we would think of as kind of full provinces. They come more into the control of 
whether either Rome, you know, might initially put its own client king in place rather than one that was there, or they might do kind of various other stages of association. And you end up with a situation where all of these areas are formal provinces. And then in late antiquity, you get a much more deliberative attempt to create one system that maps onto the whole empire. But that's a very gradual process over, over 400 years. Yeah, for my take, I would take issue a bit with the notion that this is a con that we can understand this as an as an as a confederation. Um, and I think one because confederation implies or can imply, you know, sort of voluntariness. You know, we all band together and that. Um, but I think sort of more importantly, almost like from a sort of historical, so from an analytical point of view, it's so it's about the direction of the alignment. Right, it's not so much that. So let's take, for example, the Roman province of Asia, or what they called the province of Asia, essentially is Western Anatolia, so Western day modern, um, Western modern day Turkey. Um, it's not that all the polis, and you're absolutely right, right? Those communities, like they are degree polis, uh, like Athens, you know, that had existed in this area. Um, before it's not that they all say, "Oh, let's band together and be a right. province." So it's it's not right? a it's not a bottom <laughs> up. Uh, confederation. Yeah, and and the, the other thing is the relations that are really important to each and every one of those communities and their elites is the relationship to Rome. Mm -hmm. Right? In the Republic, it's to the city and in particular, so to the Senate, and then it's the relationship to the emperor. Right? So this is, you know, speaking, you know, from an EU perspective, it's as if, you know, if we all really cared about, you know, the privileges, um, in, you know, or like, basically, I living in Germany would have to really care about that, you know, we're friends with the mayor of Brussels. Right. Like that sort of, uh, <laughs> that's the, that's the, that's the difference. Okay. So, I mean, another way to, I mean, again, I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is, is take what I'm hearing from you and put it into vocabulary that makes sense to me. And then you get to tell me whether I'm right or wrong or not. So it functions in some ways like a confederation it was this this confederation was created somewhat by accident but definitely by by force of arms from from a central and you know top down sort of way and then the reason um the way it continued as a confederation was because it continued to benefit uh the people on top and this has got to be at these two levels right the people on top in rome and then also it must benefit the local elites as well and as long as they're in, you know, mutual aid or solidarity with one another, it makes sense to continue running this this way. And that the you can go one step further. What Rome does, which is or one of the things Rome does that is into innovative, is that it, you know, the the interests of the local elites and the interests of Romans in the center are in part aligned because Rome offers membership of the censorship. Of the center to provincials right it shares citizenship which is a really innovative idea in the ancient world right you don't see you don't see athenian um you know athens offering membership of the city of athens to people who have never been to athens nor will they ever go right whereas it is possible in the roman world to be in some sense a roman right which means that you are part of a city that you have you will you have never been to you will never be to you have no conception of what that's like but it's a thing that you want right and so that the, the 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 kind of additional element what you in what you say is that the local elites because some of them at least they become romans right so they they are they are not just aligned in their interests it becomes in some sense their interests right because they are part of that centralizing you know force to whatever extent you want to call it centralizing right that's that's kind of that in many ways that's the most mind-blowing thing about what about what Rome does is the sharing of citizenship yeah that's fascinating i guess the next question that that leads to me is to what extent so does that mean you can get very very different models of uh, the relationship between the elites and whatever you want to call them the peasants whoever whoever is below them so can that that would look very different in asia versus syria versus gaul or or no like do the, do the sort of existing structures kind of stay that lisa's thinking about this i think look, the, the the first thing that really comes to mind is ah oh, this is so difficult to tell 
right? Because of course, yeah. like, uh, you know, the majority of our sources, you know, they're, they're elite focused, they're elite authors. This is, it's so hard to look beyond that. Um, one thing sort of to, to bear in mind and, uh, or to consider, and I think James will, might have more to say about this sort of the, maybe before we go to the peasants, it's sort of the non-elites in city, mm -hmm. which were sort of slightly better, um, better, um, better informed about and sort of the, um, where, I mean, I don't, I don't know, James, would you, no, this is, this is a really, this is a ridiculous question to ask, you know, if cities in the East and in the West, you know, you operate on sort of similar uh, ways, but I mean, I would just say, and I, you know, from your angle, but also, you know, from my angle, from where I'm coming from, this is interesting, right? The, the non-elites in these cities, like they, from all that we can see, they understand themselves as meaningful participants in the political life of these places. Um, sometimes through institutional sort of venues um, and channels, but more often than not, through sort of just, you know, gathering in the streets. Um, and that's trying, I, you know, and that's, I think, often, being more or less effectively able to hold local elites account but also roman officials um that's a that's sort of a really really striking um phenomenon that you see sort of particularly well in the in the christian um in yeah in the christian materials and evidence so before we hear from James, I just want to jump in and say this was absolutely the topic of my discussion with Anthony Caldellis is like, if the people didn't like what the administrator was doing, they would do what what we would call mob rule. And I mean, they would come out and, and demand the end, we, we could call it mob rule or occupation or rally or whatever. And what the Byzantines called it was, you know, business as usual, the Roman Republic, the the people speaking, mm -hmm. they did not have, you know, Anthony says they, they did not, you know, they hated what they called anarchy. Um, but the idea that people would just rise up and shout and yell and denounce the, the, the person who supposedly, you know, was in charge of them, that was not only, you know, not considered wrong, it was considered right. It was considered very Roman for the people to show up and denounce their ruler, at least in the era that Anthony was is working in. And I think he has certainly argued that this is a continuation. This is what he calls the res publica, that the people do have this, this voice. I would, I think I would, I would even um, sort of expand this, this position in the sense it's not so much that the people show up as a crowd when they don't like what the rulers are doing, but to show up as a crowd, I can sort of when they show up as a crowd when they're trying to get the ruler to do something, uh, right? Okay. And that really yeah. goes back to sort of James's, uh, James's point about sort of the, you know, this idea that the Roman, that Roman governance, that the Roman government, quote unquote, is sort of essentially reactive. Right. That and so then, yeah. I'm gonna stop there because James wants to, wants to say something. Well, what, what I would what I would add into this is is that sort of a core. I mean, this is this is really really interesting, and it is a key question as to the degree of agency that you're affording to people on the streets. Right now, it's that the, the sort of the, the what. It, Sounds like the, the Caldellis point is bang on in the, in the sense that at the core of the idea of the race publica is the agency of the Roman people, right? Is is absolutely key, and there's a whole debate over whether they actually have the degree of agency that is kind of attributed to them in in the theory. You know, to what extent is is the republic a democracy, right? That that's that's a whole question. When you get to the empire, you know, it's the 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 role of the people changes. The principle that the people are in charge is in some sense definitely still extant, but the means and, and concretely the places where that is, it can be demonstrated change. You know, it, it moves, in, in one simple example is it moves from political um, arenas to entertainment arenas, right? And so there's, you know, this whole debate over the kind of the crowd in the amphitheater and that's quite a nice microcosm because we know that the crowd demands things right of the emperor because it's one of the it's one of the the, the sort of the power of the elites is now crystallized in one figure right the arena is one place where the people and the emperor are present 
together. And so we know that the people demand stuff and the emperor gives it to them on occasion. Fine. So this is this is a sort of example of that, you know, the sort of voice of the people. But then it, it becomes more complicated when you think, well, you know, why are the people there in the first place, right? They didn't have to be, right? They could have filled it with with higher levels of society, right? The Colosseum only seats fifty thousand seats, fifty thousand people, right? It's a, it's a, and Augustus sort of um, creates a stratigraphy of seating, right? It's in order in order that it's very deliberately a microcosm of society. In other words, whatever is going on in the arena is in some sense staged, right? That there is a deliberate attempt to give the people a place where they're in the same place as as the emperor. So then the question is: Are these real statements of of are these real occasions where the emperor doesn't want to do something and the people demand it, or is it like a kind of what you might call the, the sort of the steam vent on unrest, where you have to have certain venues where you give the appearance of of agency? Um, that that you know that that's a, that is a debate. It's a live debate. The, the point is there is there is a really kind of the agency of the people in the empire is is not a kind of monolithic thing. It's it's in some sense subconsciously quite heavily theorized, I think, even within the Roman world. And when we get to the to the provinces, I think it's important to to rem, to, to introduce kind of chronological distinctions, right? That that the the agency of the degree to which someone in the street in Corinth will be interested in Rome might not be the same in the first century and the third century. Right? In part because, for example, the number of citizens is is radically different, right? So in 212, there's an edict of universal citizenship. So in some sense, people, more people are Roman in the third century. Um, but then there's also just, Lisa and I both in different ways kind of are really interested in introducing the texture of ancient life, right? The, 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 the kind of nitty gritty granular level that whether any particular individual cares about Rome or not, really, it's very difficult to generalize about that, right? A farmer in one particular region might never see a Roman soldier from birth to death, right? But in another place, if it's on the troop lines where the troops are going back and forth to the to the frontier, Rome will mean something very different to them, right? Because every five years, there's Roman soldiers in the village taking all the stuff, right? So, so what what people in the provinces think about Rome and how they interact with it is is we can construct different models and different circumstances, but but different individuals, it, it depends very much on time and place and circumstance. Okay, that's it. That's, I mean, that's fascinating. I think even opening up the the imagination to a, a Rome that is, you know, more, if you want to say, dem democratic is of huge value, at least for me. Um, the question that's been lingering and you guys can tell me if this is just a, a bad question or, or too hard to answer or anything. When Rome is used as a model for how 19th, 20th, and 21st century states must be, the uh, the idea is that we want what the Romans had, which is right rule of law, uh, efficiency, infrastructure. So you know, I'm no expert on Rome, but I mean, I've been on the Pont du Gard. Like they, they, they seem to have built some really good stuff. And we're told now, we have to have technocrats and bureaucrats if we want to build bridges. And of course, our bridges fall apart in 70 years, and some of their bridges are still standing. So if if it's not technocratic bureaucracy, how did the Romans build all these damn bridges? That's my question. Is it a stupid one? So, I suppose, my critique, slave labor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, sure. I mean, but that's sure, not, but that's there. not that's not the question in terms of the source of the labor. The question is the is the direct. I mean, or is this just reactive? Someone writes a letter to the the empire. Um, Nemes needs water, and the emperor writes back, "Build an aqueduct. Use all the slave labor you need." I mean, the slave question definitely speaks to the quality, right? That that the quality of what you build really depends on the resources that you have available. So, so if 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 you have a, a sort of not unlimited but an extremely large labour force that costs you nothing and which is considered um, material product rather than personnel, 
um, it becomes much easier to build structures that last. And obviously there's then a whole separate question around Roman kind of technical engineering. Um, but it, I mean, one caveat there, Rome, Rome is not the, um, is not the space for, for um, uh, innovation that it's sometimes seen as being. It's quite deeply traditional in its, in its kind of engineering and its, its sort of science, what we might call it scientific culture. Again, separate question, but I mean, there, there's something to be questioned there. Um, and the answer of, to the question, of, I mean, I don't think you need uh, a large bureaucracy to do that kind of building. I mean, a lot of that building is driven by military um, military action, which is something slightly different. And um, and a, a lot of it is res is responsive. You know, it's I mean, Rome is not building aqueducts out of out of goodwill, right? It's it's part of the soft power project. Um, so I think, I mean, I think the best answer I can give without thinking about it more is that you, I think you can separate those two things that are that the, the idea of a kind of highly legal, centralized bureaucratic state and the, the sort of the, the material product of the Roman Empire uh, don't require each other. They're not necessarily kind of bound to each other. Yeah. I mean, um, maybe I would also add that um... You know, sort of that part of what you just said also, you know, is sort of an it's an idealization of the Roman world, right? Sure, we can travel through, you know, the shores, you know, along the shores of the Mediterranean, and, and every so often, you know, we'll spot an aqueduct in the distance. Um, but really, um, I mean, to me, sometimes, you know, the the funny or you know more interesting things about building in the sort of in the Roman Empire that to imagine is that, well, one most likely many landscapes were actually full of abandoned settlements and sort of ruins that sort of stood there and they could be despoiled and you know reused in other places but also um one of the main problems that uh, seemed in cities in the roman empire with regard to building that seems to have existed was unfinished buildings because that because often they would run out of money before it was finished. So right there, you know, they were fine. And because often these buildings sort of went back to individual sort of, you know, local elite initiative and, you know, and then the money ran out. So, you know, they decided they, they, they were going to spend it someplace else. So, so, um, um, so actually like Roman law, Roman lawyers um, ended up in a situation where they had to come up with a fair amount of rules for how unfinished buildings could, could and have to be dealt with. But this is precisely, Lisa, in our political imagination that we're told never happens <clears throat> in Rome. Everything is always built, and it's built so wonderfully, and it lasts forever and endures. I'm sorry, James, go right ahead. No, 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 this, the only thing I'll add to this, it goes back to that, the political imagination. And so I'm not an expert in this at all, so this is more a suspicion. But but my guess would be that the, narrat the narrative of Roman engineering brilliance, which is bound in with with justification of empire yes. is coming out of a British obsession with, with <laughs> British does, engineering. It does like, sound it, like 18th and 19th century British rhetoric, doesn't it? It exactly. really does. And like the building of the railway in, in Burma, right? That that those so I, I you know I don't have the sources for that, but but I wonder how much of our obsession with that in Rome. Because you know, Rome is not not necessarily unique in its in its in its architectural achievements, right? There, there are many other ancient civilizations that built um incredible things right so i wonder whether the, the that link that link between the kind of architecture and empire is to do with justification of apology for for empire to do with civilization and it's you know the engineering thing is about the british role in the industrial revolution that'll be my guess well i mean you've taken me right where i want to be james which is my argument is that all of this all of this thinking about the ancient world that we have goes back to Machiavelli at the absolute farthest back, but more likely to 19th century state building projects, or at the very latest, at the very earliest late 18th century state building projects where you want to make an empire, say, in North America, and you start putting fucking columns on everything. And you say, look, it's it's Rome. We're the, we're the new Rome, and we'll have a Senate. And that's how governments work. And when we think about Rome, we are not studying 
the Roman Empire. We are studying the European imagination of empire in the 18th and 19th century. I mean, that's really more or less the central thrust of this series I'm doing, which which you are now uh, hopefully well, willingly a part of. That's that is just essentially true for the Roman world, and you know, appropriately. As I've I've kind of talked about the British side, but I wonder. I mean, Lisa, do you want to talk about Monson and Co? Oh boy. Um, yeah, I mean, right. So, so the, I mean, it's it's very clear Germany had a colonial, had colonial possessions and had an empire since the nineteenth century German state. Um, although, right in Germany, that it's not something that you know as uh, prominent this in sort of the nation's um, um, historical imagination as I think right it was in Britain or in France um, or in other places, um, but. The politics, it strikes me, of sort of the German tradition is slightly different, right? Because it's not it's not about empire, it's not about imperial rule, right? The sort of um, most of the, I mean, let's just talk about Bonson. I mean, he was just a diehard liberal. Um, so, like many many sort of um, members of the sort of emerging pro professoriate in sort of nineteenth century German German universities, um, he was very invested in sort of the. Um, the hope for sort of a liberal republican revolution, a law-based state, yeah, yes. right? <laughs> that you know, the culmination of this effort was then the sort of the the failed constitutional assembly of 1848. Um, and so, so I mean, I think that's really sort of the um, that's. On one level, I think it's sort of that environment where sort of the the idea um, of Rome as sort of as a law-based state, you know, with what Monson would call a Staatsrecht, you know, like a um, a law governing the state that could be, you know, that he also understood very clearly that it didn't quite work like he would have wanted to work, you know. Um, like he would have wanted it to work in sort of his ideal Germany, um, but the idea that that's how you how you could meaningfully describe this place and this political system, that sort of really sort of that that originated sort of in that specific sort of historical context, and you know made sure I think also and and, and that's the interesting thing that you know that this didn't sort of just remain you know like an idea, um, you know in the pages of you know thinkers like Hegel. Um, but that is really like, you know, that then you had sort of actual, um, um, you know, academic historical research, you know, sort of not predicated on that idea, but structured around and pr profoundly informed by that notion. Um, and so, you know, that's then also right how, um, how, you know, these 19th century ideas, how they sort of did enter academic research and its, and its agendas and sort of how, you know, a, I mean, I don't know, James, but, you know, a lot of Roman history in the past 50 years has been hard at work at sort of trying to undo and unpick and uncover uh, sort of these, these um, to uncover these traditions and, 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 and sort of put new, better, we would say, I think, more historically accurate points in place, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, you can see, I always find it interesting, you can see with Monson, I think, the sort of, the desperate need to find to get the system to work to get the the rules to work from from the evidence um because we you know we have fragmentary evidence but you know and then this is partly an academic in general academics like clean systems and categories right you want to come up with this you know the, the theory works or that you can kind of explain things and so that the you know kind of the messiness of the ancient world is something i think that we're kind of we're now rediscovering. I think the more interesting question is, you know, the extent to which that, you know, the Rome with which we kind of started on this podcast is, um, you know, how much is a kind of wish fulfillment exercise that then, you know, ancient Rome is then a kind of, it's a place where people put something that they want or need from their current or want for their current society. And I think, you know, it's certainly true that 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 you know Roman historians now kind of we feel we're getting closer to the historical reality, but I mean it's also very true that we're also responding to our own circumstances in ways some of which we kind of know and are happy with, and some of which we're 
you know, unconscious of. So there, you know, there's a really interesting historical question as to whether we are we are still doing that kind of using antiquity as a as a place to work out contemporary issues. So I just need to say, for me, this this isn't a problem. I'm act I'm actively looking for what I want to call anarchism in the ancient world. It's just it's just your job. Uh, you you have to wrestle with this problem. I'm freely admitting I don't know anything, or I know very little about the Roman world, but I delight in describing it in ways that are so antithetical to the 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 Roman of the imagination, which is hierarchical, stable, rules based, um, all of all of these things. Um, we. I could keep doing this for a while, but I can't. I'm going to have to go pick up my daughter from school uh, pretty soon. So, uh, James and Lisa, is there anything else you feel like we need to cover before before we go? I mean, there's masses we could cover. I suppose my my closing kind of thing for you would be that that I think we we definitely can abandon the old kind of model of you know centralized legal system. I think. The Romans would balk at the idea of describing what was happening in the province as anarchy, given that that's the name of the podcast. I have no, I I have no doubt about that. The, the, way, the way I would say it is that the, the Romans don't care what's going in the provinces until it, until it kind of becomes problematic for them, and in particular in terms of social unrest. So actually, anarchy, anarchy in terms of a lack of system, fine. Anarchy in terms of people out on the streets, that's that's when they would actually start to to intervene. So actually, there's a sort of there's a very you know there's almost a tipping point, right? Where there's a, like a so you might you might say a, like a certain degree of anarchy is is kind of okay. And Lisa mentioned earlier, kind of people on the streets. What's really interesting in the ancient sources is that the people on the streets tend to know exactly how far they can push it. Mm. And and on the occasions when someone gets it wrong, it's pretty cataclysmic, right? But it but we have. Um, we have you know occasions when crowds will gather and someone in the crowd will say like no further like go this far but if 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 this anarchy becomes too too obvious or goes too far then then we we are the roman system is going to kick into place and we should not give you the impression that there was no ability to use force or roman systems it's just not systematic reactive reactive military crackdowns again as opposed to systematic of our and uh, in, in we have a since orwell at least or stalin perhaps is the uh, an image of systematic oppression and i think pe- we can imagine the roman world as like that but it's so clear from your conversation it wasn't it wasn't that nor was even the czar like that the czar had secret police and military crackdowns but it was not systematized in the way that that we have it now Thank you, James. Lisa, anything, any last thoughts from you? Um, I just, um, maybe I'll just, I'll just add something that I find sort of, you know, from the, from the perspective of hope, let's say, or, um, you know, and opening up perspectives that I found often so meaningful about the empire, which is this, you know, so we talked about the reactiveness of the, of the, of the government, and also what I think should be added is that the, sort of the government, the emperor, but also the, uh, the the officials in the provinces say sort of they often they really like to advertise their reactiveness, mm. right? And sort of in, and their responsiveness. And right, I think on one level, as James said before, in relation to the amphitheater, well, you know, on some level, this is just staged, but I think it it's so, it, it must have really shaped like what it was like to live in this world, right? Because essentially people took them up on this. So we know, for instance, you know, the governor of Egypt gets to the Fayum, which is an oasis um, next to the Nile, um, and within two days, he he receives close to two thousand petitions <laughs> from people living in the region. And right on one level, we can be really cynical about this because we know, I mean, he'll respond, he'll say something meaningful, maybe in relationship to ten percent of it, you know, and the others just get sent back, and I'm not dealing with this. Um, but but at the same time, you know, just the fact that you have these 2,000 people who in a way, right, what do they write about? Oh, they have some dispute with their neighbor and they got beaten up. And so, you know, they want some, restor- you, you know, so they want some reparations or something that they pin, you, you know, that there is this figure on some level, right? They pin their hopes on, on him. 
and on his powers, you know, to change their lives and to make it different and to change their social position. Um, it, it just, um, I'm, you know, almost like the fact that then in very few instances that actually happens. Um, it, to me, it's not as, it doesn't seem as important as just thinking that, oh, that's, you know, that's the world in which they live in. They had that hope, um, right? And, and, and that hope propelled them to action again and again and again and again. Um, yeah, and it's just such a different world, you know, if that hope didn't exist. And there's a whole raft of ways that we haven't talked about that we'll just have to leave as a, clean, a cliffhanger in that as the longer the empire goes on, the more that people in the provinces figure out ways within the system to, to, to appropriate it to their own advantage. So not 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 kind of in terms of rebellion and rebel, but they 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 learn the rules of the system or the the mechanisms in place, and they start to recognise you can mobilise it. So Lisa talks about petitions, right? Which is, I mean, absolutely phenomenal the engagement with it. But they also learn that if you can get hold of a written precedent that someone <laughs> senior wrote earlier on, then that has that has force to the Romans in a court of law, right? So that if you can if you can store that somewhere, and then you can wheel it out. Then you might be able to force a governor to do something they don't want to do because you have a piece of paper that kind of trumps you know from an earlier emperor that kind of thing they 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 so that again that's another way of kind of coming at the hope perspective that the um the provincials are are engaging with the empire both on its own terms and figuring out how to how to get it to work for them yeah i mean in in some central way it seems to me that what you're both talking about is the sense that the the roman government owes the people something and that is simply not we 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 think of empires working precisely the other way around and of course we've covered the ways in which the people owe things to the empire but the rome and again anthony caldellis mentioned this as well the the there was the expectation if you were in roman government that you would deliver for not just the elites but for the people and that is that that is a place for hope for me thank you so much james and lisa this was such a pleasure um all right i guess we're done thank, thank you so much, much. um great conversation thank you wonderful